once you grab your Bibles, Genesis 3, stand to your feet. We're going to stand in honor of God's word. You know, it's very important that you guys understand this is not a TED talk, okay? Uh, this isn't, let's come hear what Sam thinks. It doesn't really matter what I think. Uh, we are here to examine God's word because God's word is authoritative and it stands over us. It has authority over us. And so we stand in respect to God's word. And I'm just going to read the passage this morning. It's pretty short uh, and then we'll pray. So Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you're a God that speaks. You're a God that communicates truth. You don't leave us in the dark. You don't leave us alone. You've shown yourself to us. God, this morning, we just want to sit with our Bibles open, with notebooks open, with hearts open, with ears open. God, we want to hear what you have to say. Father, I pray that we would be submitted to the authority of your scripture, that we would be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, we just want to hear from our dad this morning. God, we want to sit before you. So Lord, whatever this passage truly says, whatever it truly means, and whatever application it may have for us, God, I pray that you would unpack that. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. We live in a hostile, we live in a hostile world, don't we? We live in a world that uh, is ultimately against us. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Gravity certainly is, right? Life is one big giant war against gravity and you lose. It starts with sagging and, you know, and then you go into the dark, you get where I'm going with that, okay. We live in a hostile world. We live in a Genesis chapter three world. Up until this point, as we've been studying the book of Genesis, we've been looking at God's creative work and the way that he built and designed his universe as this master craftsman. And up until this point, the universe was exactly the way God intended it. But last week, something changed. Genesis chapter three changed the paradigm of what human uh, existence and what, what God's cosmos looks like. It changed forever the structure of the world that we live in. It went from being an environment that was hospitable for humans, that was designed for humans, that was perfect for humans, to now being an environment that is hostile to humans. You know, proof of this, uh, one of my favorite hobbies um, that I do is I, go, I love to go backpacking in the backcountry. You know, I love to pack up everything in my backpack and say, okay, this is all I have to survive. Um, and what's amazing to me, actually, is how much stuff it takes for me to live and not die in the woods. I mean, it's crazy. I have to have the right uh, clothes. I have to have water filtration. I have, to way to make, have a way to make fire. I have to have shelter. I have to have a certain kind of temperature of bag. And that's in the summertime. I'm going to try to go in the snow. And man, that's like a totally different thing. Nature is out to get you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, 
The Lion King might say it's the circle of life, but let's be honest, it's really the circle of death, right? Okay, you can call it life, but it's all about things dying, okay? Um, that's, that's the world, that's the Genesis 3 world that we live in. And even though we have all of this modern technology that makes our lives fairly comfortable, the reality is we still live in the wild. We still, cancer is still a reality. Sickness is still always there. Car accidents still happen. Gravity is out to get you. There is pandemics and diseases and all kinds of things. We are living in a Genesis 3 world, a Genesis 3 reality. Last week we saw why that is, right? We saw that man stepped out of God's will and stepped into his own understanding. And when that happened, God created a separation from himself, and he essentially cursed the earth and man along with it. And last week, my buddy Stephen came to preach for us, and he unpacked for us what exactly the curse was. The, the curse affected every single part of the earth. And essentially what the curse did was it made everything God said to do and everything God made you to do, it just made it harder. God told man, go fill the earth. And we still do that, but now it's hard. Now childbearing is dangerous. Now marriage is hard. Now relationship is hard. All the things God said to do, we still have to do, but now it's difficult because we live in a Genesis 3 world. God said to go work the ground, and we still do. We still go to work every day, right? We still work the ground, but it's not yielding to us. The ground now pushes back. It bears thorns and thistles, and it's, 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 it's hard to work because we live in a Genesis 3 world. That's the reality. And the question I want to ask today with you, and the question that I think our text answers is, how do we live in a Genesis 3 world? Because we all do. We all do. We all live in the constant dangerous environment of this Genesis 3 world. Our passage is really interesting this morning because our passage is the moment in which Adam and Eve have to realize that they are forever going to live in this new world. Not in the world that they lived in before, not the Genesis 2 world, not the world that was, procre- uh, that, that was um, perfectly set up for them, that was safe and that was comfortable, but now the door has slammed behind them, literally. God has shut them out of the garden. There's no going back. It's like the the moment, not that um, you guys have ever experienced this, but it's like the moment you can imagine where you are about to serve a life sentence and the judge's gavel has fallen and you're marched into your prison cell and you hear the door slam behind you and you know that no matter how much you hate it and no matter how much you don't like it and no matter how innocent you might think you are, the new reality of your life is that prison cell forever. This is a heavy moment. Imagine being Adam and Eve in this moment. Everything that they'd ever known, the the environment that was constructed for them is now shut, locked behind them. They can't get back in. Not only is it shut and locked, it's guarded. This is a heart-wrenching moment. But it's also a turning point. So in Genesis 3, God is essentially laying out the, the curse of sin and sin's effect. But when we get to the passage that we're gonna look at, this morning in chapter, or in verse 21, there's a turning point here that I want you to notice. And it's a turning point from God's sentence on sin to all of a sudden now God's redemption in sin. God steps out of the garden, if you will, and into the wild with his kids. What we're gonna see this morning is a good God 
stepping out of a good place into a hard place in order to save and redeem and restore, and that's exactly what God does. What we're gonna see today is the moment where a father is forced to kick his son out of the house because his son has done something so egregious that he could not, in, in any good rights, leave him in the house. And as he slams the door behind his son, knowing that he has to kick him out, the first thing he does is he runs to the phone and he makes a phone call to the place he knows his son will go to make sure that he's safe and cared for. That's what's happening here. As God is slamming the door on the garden, he's immediately considering how he will continue to love and care for and show kindness and grace to his kids. And what I want you guys to see today is, yes, God will bring us back to the garden ultimately, and we'll see that, but God is in the wild with us. Isn't that cool? He's in the wilderness life with us. In Matthew, let's see if I can find it. I didn't put it in here. No, I didn't put it in here. Um, in Matthew, though, Jesus tells the story of the good shepherd, right, who comes after his sheep, and, and he uses it as an illustration to talk about the heart of a father, the heart of a, a father that literally will leave the 99 and go after the one. And what's so astounding about Genesis chapter three is <clears throat> not that God, <clears throat> excuse me, not that God curses humanity, that makes perfect sense. What's astounding is that God steps into the curse and begins to care for them. So what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at how God cares for his kids, how God cares for his kids in the Genesis 3 world. And the star of this sermon is God. It's his kindness. It's his love. It's the way that he cares for us. And, and I'm not here to tell you three things that God will do if you have enough faith. I'm here to tell you three things that God is already doing for you, and you're just probably not even aware of it. Three ways that God is being kind and covering you and, and coming and stepping into the wild with you, into this Genesis 3 <clears throat> reality. So if you're a note taker and if you have your hand out in front of you, you can follow along with this. But three, I want to look at three evidences of God's kindness in the wilderness of a Genesis 3 world. Number one, God gives us covering. God gives us covering. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I'm to stop right there for a minute. I want you to consider for a minute what's happening here. So if you remember from, from Genesis chapter three, the first half, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they immediately were aware of their nakedness. They were immediately aware of their vulnerability, which, which, which ultimately was a picture of the results of sin. Something was wrong, something was off, and they, this urge to hide themselves. So the first thing they go do is they go sow fig leaves for themselves. They, they go try to cover themselves. Fig leaves are, are not ultimately a very good um, clothing, not that I've ever made clothes out of fig leaves. I could just imagine, you know, things would start to dry out, crumble and shrivel at some point, and you would probably not have a lot left. Okay, so they make the clothes for themselves, but in this scene, this is really interesting. I know some of you are so common with this passage, like, yeah, whatever, he makes some clothes, whatever. I need you to step back and think about how weird this is. After sin has been introduced because man ultimately betrayed God and, 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 and stepped out of God's plan, the first thing God does after telling him what the curse is going to look like is he goes and he makes some clothes. He makes some clothes. Now, 
Why does he do that? It's just this strange kindness of God that he, he comes in and clothes Adam and Eve. Let me, let me suggest a few reasons why I think the clothing that God makes for them is, is really important. First of all, I think that the clothing here is a, a, a picture of atonement. It's a picture of atonement. The word atonement, um, you can remember it as at-one-ment. It's the idea that something has been severed so think of it as, has been broken or separated, and atonement is the bringing back together of those two things. One party has been offended. Okay, why is God going into his creation and killing animals in order to clothe the nakedness of his kids? It's so random, why would he do that? Well, first of all, I think it was, it was a picture of atonement. I think it was a reminder of the fact that Adam and Eve's sin cost. You know what sin costs? If you don't, then you haven't lived very long. Your sin costs you. And oftentimes, unfortunately and sadly, it costs someone else, right? Sin costs, it hurts. It, and, and, and it hurts because it's death. It, it hurts because it's evil. It hurts because it's the absence of God's will. And when we sin, there is a payment that must be paid, especially for a perfect and righteous judge who is God, right? So what happens is Adam and Eve have sinned and someone has to die. Someone has to die. And in this case, it's an animal. I don't know, the idea of sacrifice just sounds bizarre to our you know, informed, enlightened 2021 brains, right? We just think, that's so weird. But, but think about it for a minute. Why is every religion throughout history and every, uh, you know, every natural idea of what religion should look like of humans always in, in, until sacrifice? Why is that? It's because we know. We know that sin costs. We know that there needs to be payment made. What God does here in this moment is he, he wraps Adam and Eve in an eternal reminder of the fact that they have sinned and something has to die. You know, in my imagination, I think about this, I think, okay, um, was this nicely groomed and tanned and scraped leather that God got or, or was it a hide directly from an animal? placed onto Adam and Eve that still had a smell that would have been unfamiliar to the nostrils of Adam and Eve who never smelled death before. Can you imagine wrapping around yourself the skin of the animal that you were charged to protect and realizing in that moment that you are the reason that animal had to die? Can you imagine the heaviness of that? Adam's job was to protect the animals. His, his job was to steward and govern the animal kingdom as well as, as all of God's creation. And because of Adam's sin, God had to take the life of this animal. And now he's wearing it. Adam would, of course, recognize right away, though, that as God places this garment on him, it did not take away his sin, did it? It simply covered it. It was temporary. It was a temporary covering. A temporary covering. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, makes it really clear. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why blood? Because blood represents life. And what is sin? Sin is death. The payment for sin is life, either the life of your, either your life or the life of someone else. What's astounding about this passage to me is that God takes the life. Have you ever thought about that? If it were me, I would say, you idiots, you blew it, you go make some animal skins for yourself. That's not what God does. He comes in and takes the life. He comes in and takes the sacrifice. What an amazing picture. 
of the gospel. That God himself would come into his own story and that the father would take the son, that would take the life of his own son in order to cover the sins of his kids. God initiates salvation. God is the saving agent. God is the gracious one. And right away, immediately in Genesis 3, right as the earth has been shattered into a Genesis 3 wilderness reality, God is immediately covering his kids with grace. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Praise the Lord for that. The second thing I think that the covering is supposed to remind us, not only atonement, but also a covering for shame. We're still on point one here, by the way. God's not only covering them so that they'll remember their need for atonement, he's covering them because they have this shame now. You know, shame is a really powerful thing. Most of you are more motivated by shame than you even realize. I mean, so many of the decisions that you make every second are shame decisions. Your, your decision to sit, maybe, uh, no offense to you guys in the back of the room, I'm not saying, yeah, your decision to come into a room and hide in the back, no offense, I'm not talking about you, other people, other people, okay. To, it, your decision to, to, to avoid a subject that you don't want to be brought up. Your decision to, um, to cover something, it, it, these, are, these are shame decisions. And what happened in Genesis three was shame was immediately a reality for humans, and it has been ever since. Shame is now a driving agent in this world. And, and that's why the first thing that Adam and Eve do, if you were to go back and look at the passage, is they try to deal with their shame. They do it in three ways, you ready? The first way they do it is they hide. God shows up in the garden, like he always did. He's, where are my kids? And they're hiding in the bushes. That's like the most classic way to hide shame, is to hide. <laughs> I don't want anyone to see this part of me. I'm just gonna stuff that down. And everybody has those things, right? The things we hide in the bushes. And that's the first way we deal with our shame. The second way we deal with our shame is to sow fig leaves. Okay, and what that means is that I'm gonna do a lot of good things so that people don't see the real me. I'm gonna do so much good. I've talked to so many people that were just serial committers of sins in particular areas, and I say, what were you thinking when you were just keeping doing that, keeping doing that, keeping doing that? A lot of them tell me, you know, I just was trying to outweigh good with evil. While I was committing all of these heinous things that nobody knew about, I was simultaneously doing all of these good things, hoping I could fill the bucket. You know what that is? That's fig leaves. That's, I'm ashamed of who I am, but I'm gonna cover myself with good works. That's classic religion. You, you wanna know why religious people are so good, at, good on the outside? Because they have to sew their own clothes. They have to sew their own fig leaves. That's the reality. The third way they hide their shame is blame shifting. Remember in Genesis 3, God comes to them and says, what did you do? And all of them have a reason. And it's not their fault. I'm a victim. It's the woman you gave me, right? It's the serpent that you let into the garden. They're all blame shit. That's another way of dealing with shame. I don't like who I am, and it's my dad's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's the woman you gave me. It's the people I have in my life. They just don't love me. They don't understand me. You know what that is? It's a coping mechanism for your shame. You are ashamed of yourself, and you're covering it. So what does God do? He comes into the shame environment of the Genesis 3 wilderness, and rather than expose it all at once, he's very kind He's very kind. Now, God is not about hiding. 
And he's not about, he's not about um, being fake. He's not about covering up your shame, but he is so gracious in the way that he deals with it. He comes into the garden and he clothes the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He recognizes that they are in a vulnerable state, that they're terrified, they're embarrassed, and he clothes them. What a gracious God to do that. What a gracious God to do that. You know, one of the things that kept me away from salvation for so many years was I was afraid of God really knowing me, and I was afraid of me having to be really honest about who I really was. And it, it kept me away. I thought of God as like this, this poking, prodding surgeon that just wanted to cut at me. And then by the, whole, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, man, I had this moment where I realized, no, that's not God at all. God is coming into my shame. He's coming in sensitively, respectfully, into the shame and the insecurity that I'm feeling, and he's desiring to cover me. He's desiring to clothe me with his kindness. There's a story, and we'll get to it in a couple chapters, in Genesis, um, where Noah, <clears throat> after God cleanses the earth from all this, this sin and death and everything, and Noah, who's kind of the let's start it over guy, like let's get a new Adam, how about Noah, okay? Uh, and things go bad right away. You know, he plants a vineyard, bakes some really good grapes, makes some really good wine, and gets totally plastered. Not a good look, not a good start for new humanity, right? Gets totally plastered and ends up face down naked in his tent, like you do, okay, um, when you're Noah. And his son, Ham, which this is why we can't, this is why Jews couldn't eat bacon, actually, because Ham blew it. Um, his son, Ham, comes into the tent, sees his father naked, and thinks it's a joke. Exposes him, he goes and he tells his brothers, right? His brothers knew better. They come to the tent, and rather than look on their father's shame, rather than expose their father's stupidity, they grab a blanket, they walk backwards into the tent, and they clothe their father. That is the dispensation, that is the dis, what is the word I'm looking for? Disposition, dispensation is a totally different thing. That is the disposition of the God, the father that loves you and understands your shameful state. I mean, some of you guys are sitting there right now like, yeah, I would love to be a Christian, but man, God, there's no way I can be honest about this stuff in my life. It's too painful. Can I encourage you that, that, that the gospel starts with God's covering? And then he does this amazing thing where he patiently and graciously and kindly allows you to expose certain things in your life in order that he might deal with it, like radiation. He just, just, just the right amount. If God had allowed me to see the full extent of my sinfulness when I first got saved, it would have been overwhelming to me. As I've grown in the Lord, he's patiently exposed areas in my life that I didn't even know I was ashamed of. Areas that I was hiding, you know, like, like those broken ribs, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you don't want anyone to get close to it. That, that painful area. I, I didn't even know it was there. And then God graciously, kindly, he walks backwards into the tent. He clothes me with his righteousness. He clothes me with his kindness. And then he allows that stuff to come out so he can heal me. Isn't he good? He doesn't come into the garden and say, Adam and Eve, you idiot, go make some clothes for yourself. He comes in and he respects the fact that they're ashamed. What a good God we have. Ephesians 4. Let's see if I can find it. Ephesians uh, 4 in the New Testament, Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him, 
This is Christ. And we're taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. That's, that's the fig leaves. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, listen, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. What's that, what that's saying is that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that you can put off the fig leaves, put off the hiding, put off the blame shifting, put off the shame, and you could put on Christ. Because when God sees you now, if you are in Christ, he sees the perfect life of Jesus over the top of your broken, messed up, jacked up life. He doesn't see that. He sees the perfect life of Christ. Dealing with your shame starts with his perfect life being applied to you. That's, otherwise you'll just keep hiding. You'll keep hiding and you'll keep hiding and you'll keep hiding. So God covers them as a picture of atonement. He covers them as a covering of shame. He also covers them as a protection. You know, this is one of the facets that we don't think about as much in regards to why God made clothes for them. Um, Yes, he was covering their shame. He was reminding them of the cost of sin, but he was also outfitting them for the life in the wilderness that they were about to go into. He understood that skin is fragile. He understood that they were sending them out to, to an area where now animals would try to eat them. The very animals that they used to probably be friends with are now hostile to them. And he puts leather on their back. What a good God. He prepares us for what we need to do. You know, when God asks you to do something, he gives you the tools to do it. And I'm not just talking about physical things. I mean, God gives you experiences. He gives you, uh, he prepares you for things. I can't tell you how many times I go through something really terrible. And I'm like, why did I have to go through that? And then a year later, I'll go, oh, so I was ready for this. God was preparing me. He was preparing me for something hard. He's so gracious. You know, the first thing he does when Jesus sends the disciples out to go and make disciples, you know what he does? He gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them what they need to go do the job that he asks him to do. He's such a good father. So, my three points here, God gives us covering, number one, okay? And number two, God gives us limits. And we don't like limits, can we just be honest? They don't make sense to our Western American brains. Buffet, that makes sense, right? As many plates of food as I want, that makes sense to me. No speed limits. That makes sense to me. You know, this idea that I can't or I shouldn't or I won't or whatever, those things don't make sense to me. Um, But God is gracious enough to give limits. Take a look at verse 22. I want you to see what God does here. After he makes clothing for them, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Who's us? It's the Trinity. It's the Godhead. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. Can we just be honest? That's so legit. That's a lightsaber. You know what a flaming sword is? That's a lightsaber. Okay, thank you placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way. That's a spinning lightsaber. You know what I mean? Can you picture it? Like like a propeller. So cool. Okay. 
Um, flaming sword <laughs> turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what's happening here. They're out of the garden. God kicks them out. He kicks them out. Why does he kick them out? He kicks them out because he's gracious. He kicks, kicking them out seems like one of the most severe things that he's done up to this point. Childbearing's gonna be hard, work's gonna be hard, ground's gonna be cursed, death's gonna be a reality, and the final hammer blow is you're out of the garden. But it's actually a grace. Why is it a grace? It's a grace because in the garden there was not only the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was also the tree of life. What was the tree of life? The tree of life was a tree of eternality. Isn't it funny? This sounds so fiction. I know if you're like not from church, you're like, what is this? Lightsabers and angels? But can we be honest? The tree of eternality? How many movies? How many books? How many stories have been written about that? It's, you know it's true. You know you were made to live forever. It's in you. The, the quest and the desire to not die is a basic human instinct. God knows that if these guys have the chance, they will break down the door of the garden, they will eat of the tree of eternality, and they will be living in eternal death. See, they live in a cursed world now. They live in a painful world. Have you ever noticed when someone's 85, 90 years old, they've lived a long life, and they say something that you as a 20, 30, 40-year-old can't even imagine, you go, they, they say, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to be done. And you go, how? What do you mean you're ready? It's because they've lived 90 years or whatever in a world that has been hard. Can you imagine living an eternal life in this world? It would be hell. An eternal life in this world would be eternal death. How gracious of a God that he kept them from doing what he knew they would do. You know how many times God keeps you from doing something he knows you would do if you could? Have you ever thanked the Lord for that? Do you know how much sin you would do if you could? You know how many times you would do something and God actually just puts you in a position where you weren't able to? So thankful for his limits. So thankful for his boundaries. He knows that we would do all kinds of evil if we were allowed. And he restricts us in many ways. And, and this idea of blocking the garden, locking the garden is a grace. And can I say this? Death in this life for the believer is a grace. It's a grace. I don't want to live in a fallen and broken and painful and cursed world forever. I wasn't made for that. It would be too much to bear. It'd be too much to bear. God knew that they needed to die at some point so that they could live. God's limits are graces. You know, I had my dad's memorial service yesterday. He was 59 years old. And I had to give the eulogy at my dad's memorial service. And... And it sucked. But you know, my, what, what made my dad's memorial so hard was, what made, it, made my dad's death so hard was we found out we had cancer and then two weeks later he was gone. And we found out he had cancer, I thought, man, we're gonna have a few years. You know, we're gonna fight this thing with my dad. We're gonna have lots of family time. I'm gonna get to hang out with him at the hospital. We're gonna move him into an apartment. I'm gonna take care of my dad. I just was really looking forward to those years. And then I get a call at 3.30 in the morning that your dad's heart stopped. Why? Why? Why, God? Why didn't you give me a few years with my dad before he went away? And you know the answer is? 
I, I don't know exactly, but I, I think the answer is, my God was showing kindness to my dad. Because you know where my dad's at right now? He's not on chemotherapy. He's not sicker than a dog in a hospital throwing up, losing his hair. My dad would have hated that. He's with the Lord. He's free from all of his struggles, all of his fears and anxieties and weaknesses. He's with the Lord, man. And I'm just like, God, thank you for your limits. God knew he was gonna die on the day he was gonna die. He knew, he knew that. That was how long my dad had. That wasn't a surprise. That was when the Lord was gonna take him home. There's comfort in that. As unnatural as death is, death in a fallen world is a grace. And for the believer, it's actually the first day that you're really truly alive. How often do you thank God for his nose? I don't mean nose like this. That's what you guys were thinking, huh? How often do you thank God for his no, N-O, apostrophe, his nose? You should, you really should. When God says no, you should go, man, thank you, Lord. How often do you thank God for his limitations? You know, there's a lot of people in this room that are single, and there's a lot of people in this room that go, Lord, why am I alone? I want you to have a little faith and go, God, thank you that I'm alone because that's exactly where you have me. Who knows where it could be at if I, if I had just taken things into my own hands. God, thank you for your limitations. Thank you for where you have me right now. He knows what you need. He's with you in the wild. He's with you in this Genesis 3 reality. You know, we get this with our kids, don't we? My son cannot figure out why he has to go to bed. Doesn't make any sense to him. Poor kid just lays there thinking about Star Wars for three hours. He can't go to sleep, right? My, my son can't figure out why he can't just eat candy every meal. It doesn't make any sense. Now, I know why he can't. Man, I had this just gnarly situation with him a couple years ago. He, I don't know what he was doing, backflips or something on his bed. He bashed his eye on the corner of this wooden box. He's just bleeding. I'm like, oh, so we take him to the emergency room or whatever, take him to the, and, and they have to give him stitches. And I had to hold, he was probably four, I guess, at the time. I had to hold my four-year-old down. Well, he screamed, bloody murder, not understanding why this woman was standing over him with a needle trying to get some, um, you know, numbing agent into his eye. And I had to hold him down. His, like, blood vessels in his eyes were popping, right? He was so angry and scared. And I'm like, buddy, you just got to trust me. I know this feels like I'm hurting you, but I'm not. I swear I'm doing this because I love you. You know, we read Genesis 3, like, what a mean God. He kicked him out of the garden. The, the fact that God immediately steps into this with them is such a grace. He immediately keeps them from he, what he knows they will do. He keeps them from getting hurt more. He keeps the, the sin within boundaries that limit it from, from really hurting them any further. We need to thank God for his limits. He has you where he has you. He has you doing what he wants you to do. Well, God, why'd you give me this physical ailment? It doesn't make sense. Why does everyone else around me not have to think about this dietary restriction? Well, that's the limit he's given you, and you don't know why he's given you that, but you gotta trust that he's good. You know where truth, faith comes? It comes when you have a belief not only in God's power, but in God's goodness, and listen, also in God's knowledge. All three of those things are true. God, you have the strength to heal me, but you also have the knowledge to know what's best for me, and you're also good. And all three of those things are true. I love this Tim Keller quote in his book on prayer, which I'd recommend. He says, when we pray, God either gives us what we ask for or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows, right? But thank God he doesn't give us everything we ask for. 
He gives us what we know, or he gives us what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. Lastly, God gave us covering, God gives us limits, and lastly, and this is really important, God gives us longing. I want you to see this in the passage. I'm not gonna read it again, but I want you to see something that's that's really interesting to me. One of the first things that jumped out to me as I was reading this passage, and that is that God leaves the garden there. He doesn't get rid of it. Wouldn't you have just gotten rid of it? Wouldn't you say, okay, garden's gone. No, eventually it went away, obviously. But rather than eliminating the garden, God does this really interesting thing where he, he guards the garden, but he leaves it in plain sight for Adam and Eve. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Here's what I think. I think God has been gracious to us in that he has left the garden in our hearts. He has left Eden in our hearts. He has stitched it into humanity. He has put it in front of us in such a way that we can't forget that it's there. It's inside of every single human being. I'm gonna nerd out on you for a second. There's a movie called Inception. Has anyone seen Inception? Homework, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Okay. Um, Inception is this crazy movie. It's, it's this idea that, that these guys learn how to hack into the subconscious of another human. They, they learn how to hawk in, uh, hawk, like, like a loogie, no. They learn it. They learn how to, man, so if I have a second service, I can get all this stuff worked out. Um, they learn how to hack into uh, the dream of another person. And what's so interesting about the movie and what makes it totally sci-fi is they learn how to go into dreams within dreams within dreams. They go into learn, to learn to go into levels of dreams, right? But the problem is that they can get so far down into the subconscious of another person that they can lose track of reality and forget whether they're in a dream or not. And so part of what makes the movie so gripping and interesting is that you're kind of curious at some point, like, wait, is he dreaming? Is he really awake? Was this whole thing real? Was it not real? And you're trying to figure it out, and they kind of leave it, spoiler alert, they kind of leave it at the end where you're even not sure if he ever woke up, right? But here's the cool thing. Okay, they, they have to create a little object that only they know the weight of and only they know the balance of. So for the main guy, it's this top that he spins. And, and the, the reason they do that is so they always have some kind of a line, an anchor back to reality. So if they're not sure if they're dreaming, they just, he just spins the top. And if it falls over, he knows, okay, I'm awake. If it doesn't fall over, just keep spinning. I'm dreaming. So at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, he spins the top and you don't know if it topples over or not. You know, is he really alive? We don't know. Um, here's why I think that's so cool. I just like such a dork. Okay, here's what's so cool. God stitched, he stitched Eden into our hearts as a sign for us, an eternal sign that we'll never forget that we are dreaming. Guys, this is not full reality. Do you understand that? <laughs> this is like, this is something that, that has a shadow an echo of a more real existence. The Garden of Eden was ultimate reality. It was the place that God intended. Senses were fully aware. Adam and Eve's brains would have functioned fully. Their bodies would have functioned fully. Creation was made the way it was. And then it, it fell into what feels like a dream state. And we know we don't belong here, don't we? We just know. We know there's gotta be more. We know because God has stitched Eden into our hearts. He left the garden intact because he knew that his ultimate plan was to get us back into the garden. You know, it's really cool. When God designed the temple and the tabernacle, if you go back and you look at it and the plans in Leviticus, he really created it in such a way that was reminding them of the garden. The tree 
in the garden. The, the menorah was meant to remind them of the tree of life. If you go into the Holy of Holies, there's the, the veil, which is the wall, the gate, keeping them out of the garden. You know what's stitched on the veil? Lightsabers, right? No. Uh, angels. Angels are stitched onto the veil. Why? To remind them of this reality that they have been shut out of the garden. And guess what? They're not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells. God left Eden in front of them so that they would always remember. And that's, you know, that's the Jews. What about everybody else? I would suggest to you that every religion exists because Eden still lives in humans' hearts. Every religion is a result of humans trying to figure out how to get back up the mountain to where they fell from. Eden was the mountain. It was where we belong. It's where we were made for. We have all fallen, and everyone knows that. I don't know what's going on, but the lights are going down. <laughs> okay, someone's screwing with me. Um, God's trying to say something. Okay, where was I? Religion, in the negative sense, is about how we get back up the mountain. How do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to the top? How do we get back into the garden? How do we get around the angel? How do we get through the gate? How do we get back to where we belong? That's what religion is. And every religion offers their solution to that. Every religion says, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Some religions say, it's the reincarnation. You gotta come back as a different animal. You keep doing that, you work your way up, you, you, you find karmic consciousness or whatever it is. You, you reach utopia. Okay, right now there, there is a, uh, a political view that says we can reach the garden if we just become accepting enough of one another, right? It's a religion. It's a false religion. Many religions like Mormonism and Islam are their workspace. You just do enough or we take over enough of the world or we establish Sharia law or we, we, we rage holy war, we take over the world, then we'll get back to the garden. Those are all false gospels. They're all the, the back door into the garden, right? What is the answer to how we get back into the garden? What's the answer? Listen to me. The answer is that God comes down the mountain. He's not sitting on the top saying, come on, guys, come on, do enough good stuff, figure it out, get up here, become enlightened. No, he doesn't do that. He comes down the mountain, the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, comes into the, out of the garden into the wild and grabs his kids and carries them up the mountain. He doesn't come down and say, come on, you can do it, good job, come on. He doesn't pull a Joel Osteen, right, and say, best life now, you got this, come on, up the hill. He doesn't do that. He knocks you out, and he throws you over his shoulders, and he carries you up the hill. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? He knows you can't make it. He knows you don't have what it takes. He carries you up the hill. I am so thankful for that. The door is guarded Right? The door is guarded by an angel. But what does Jesus say? He says, I am what? The door. The door, listen, the door to the garden has been opened. <laughs> we can get back in. And the door is not a place. The door is a person. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. By the way, that thief that comes to steal and kill, destroy, that's false religion. It only wants to take from you. It wants to tell you you need to do this. Jesus says every other door is a false religion. I am the only door. I am the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am one of the ways up the hill. Wait, did he say that? But that's what everyone around us is saying, right? There's lots of ways to get to God, you know? I mean, that's like Oprah religion, you know? Like, no, that's not what he says. He says, I am the way. There's only one door back into the garden, and Jesus is the door, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, the good news is, guys, is that God has preserved the garden, and Jesus is the way back in. And we are in the door if you are in Christ. Amen? What a kindness that God left Eden in the hearts of people. Can I suggest to you that when you're sharing the gospel or sharing Christ with an unsaved friend, that Eden is in their heart, and it's your job to activate that. Eden is in their heart. You, you, you need to show them that they were not made for this world and that every answer that the world has to offer about how to get back up the hill is flawed. None of it work. None of them work. There's only one way. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So my conclusion is simply this. We are like Adam and Eve. We, we are standing in this place where we are in the wild. We are in a Genesis 3 world, a world that is hostile, a world full of tears. I know we all put on our best face when we come here, but I know every single one of you has struggles, concerns, anxieties, pains. And, and what I want you to take away from this morning is that you serve a God that comes into the wild with you. You know who would have been reading Genesis 3 first? You know who the original audience was? It would have been the Israelites. You know where they were reading it? In the wilderness. God had just called them out from Egypt, and they're sitting there going, what in the world did you bring us out here for, Lord? And this reminded them that God was in the wilderness with them. He was the God that comes with He's the God that steps into what's going on with them. He reminds them that he's the God that covers them, both covers their shame, covers them with atonement, covers them with protection. He's the God that becomes the door. And if you remember, the instant that Jesus took his last breath and said it was finished, what happened? The veil with the angels was torn. There is no angel at the door. Only a good shepherd who knows his sheep and opens the door for his sheep. And they know his voice because he calls them by name. Isn't that good? As Christians, we may live in the wild, but we are also living with one foot in the door. We live in this tension, this place of the already not yet, realizing that our real and true home, the true Eden that God has for us, is only a breath away. And while we're here, God comes into this wild place with us. He's so good. Are you thankful for that? Let's pray, and then we're gonna have some, some discussion. God, thank you so much for your kindness, Lord. Thank you that uh, for every hard thing that we're going through right now, Lord, you're right there in the middle of it with us. You care, you care about these guys so much. Thank you that you didn't, you didn't shut us out forever. 
God, you immediately started working a plan of redemption to bring us back into the garden. Lord, protect us, we pray, from not only this world, but protect us from ourselves. Protect us from our shame. I pray right now, Lord, that we would clothe ourselves with your grace. We'd find our, our true identity in what you've done for us and find the freedom in that, Lord. And God, as we have some discussion right now around this, God, I, I just pray that we could just relax, have a good time, talk about this, not feel like we have to say some profound thing or look smart, that we would just be able to have a conversation, to be honest with the people at our tables, God. I pray that you would work in this time, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' name, amen.